Great. Well, my pop loves fishing, and he uh, has a sign that he, he's quite proud of. It says, a bad day fishing is better than a good day working. Um, and I feel like some of us can identify with this statement. Uh, in fact, 38% of Australians are unsatisfied with their work, which means more than one out of every three people would say they hate their job. And I feel like that's fairly, you know, I feel like that would be fairly consistent. I, I do meet a lot of people that hate their job. Uh, but labor is a gift from God, and it came before the fall. Adam's call to tend and keep the garden and work the garden came before the fall. But sin brought a curse to our labor because now, what does the ground produce? Thistles, thorns. It's not as easy. By the sweat of your brow, it says, you shall eat bread. So it's hard. Work is a lot hard. And occasionally, more often than not, sometimes we find it quite dreary. It's a bit of a bummer. We don't really want to get involved in it. We don't want to do it. But work itself is not a punishment for sin, is it? Work is a good thing. But now work is hard. Work is hard. But work is still a source and a blessed purpose in our lives. Uh, when you introduce yourself to someone and you're having small talk, you guys have any yarn, what's one of the first things that shows up? What do you do? Yeah, what do you do? You want to ask them what they do for a living, what they do for work. And uh, because, partly, what you do for work defines a little bit on who you are. It defines. You're not just, uh, you know, hi, I'm Cody, I am a man, and that's about it. No, I'm a pastor, and it defines part of who I am, doesn't it? doesn't matter who you are, what you do for a job defines part of who you are. And for some people, it defines our sense of worth. And Paul, in Ephesians 6, he's going to be talking a little bit about labor about your work, about your employment, the sense of employment, and he's going to see how does the gospel influence your workplace? How does the gospel change your workplace? How does it change your attitude towards work? And how does it change, if you're a boss, a Christian boss, your attitude towards your workers? So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Please read with me. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of high service, as people pleases, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Alright, right off the bat you may be thinking bondservant. What's the go there? What does the word bondservant mean? Well, it's the word doulos in Greek and it means slave. Literally the word here is slave. Slaves obey your masters. Now, slavery in the Roman Empire was a very common practice. In fact, about one third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And so a huge portion of the early church were slaves. As the gospel went forward and the gospel uh, you know, was receptive, one of the classes that was most receptive to the gospel were slaves. And so you've got a church that are full of slaves. And so uh, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all of a sudden now, all the slaves that are used to their entire life being put down, being made to work against their will, 
are now elevated in the church to a place of equality with everyone else. And so you've got all these slaves that are equal in the church. And so Paul is going to address these slaves. Even uh, this guy named Anisimus, have you guys read Philemon? It's only one, it's not even a chapter, it's just one book. It's got, I think, I'm not sure how many verses it's got, but it's a very short book. And it's about uh, Paul writing a letter to this guy named Philemon. And there's this slave that Paul is writing to him about called Onesimus. And this slave was considered even an equal to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul considers this slave an equal. This was unheard of in the ancient world, this kind of language. So we've got to be careful to understand, as we're reading this passage, Paul is not advocating for slavery. He's not advocating for slavery. In fact, he sets the course for the complete opposite thing to happen. And any effort, just so you know, to escape slavery in the Roman Empire, if you were a slave and you tried to get your freedom, guess what would happen to you? You'd be dead. They'd kill you instantly. They wouldn't even, you didn't get a trial. You would just, if a runaway slave was rounded up, they would butcher them, they would massacre them. There are plenty of tales of that. A famous one is Spartacus. Do you remember Spartacus, the gladiator slave that led this big slave uprising to gain their freedom? Well, do you know what happened to them in the end? They got brutally put down and all of them ended up dying. It wasn't, it wasn't a fun story. So slavery was a brutal time in the Roman Empire. And so Paul doesn't want to advocate for the abolishment of slavery because if he encourages all the slaves in the church, flee your masters, get out, find your freedom, guess what happens to all the Christian slaves that are in the church? They're all going to get killed. So he does something different. He decides to transform the Roman concept of slavery. Now, the Bible is very clear on slavery. If you kidnap people, man-stealing, to sell them into slavery, you've got a death sentence. It's in Exodus 21.16. You were caught capturing people to sell them into slavery. Guess what? You were put to death. That was a horrible thing in the eyes of God. Even in our 1 Timothy 1.10, if you're an enslaver, you're not allowed to be part of the community of the church. You have to repent of that sin and move from that sin and renounce that sin in order to be included into the church. So Paul, not in his lifetime, mind you, but Paul set the course and subverted slavery, and eventually in all of Christendom, which was the majority of Western Europe, slavery was abolished. Until about the 16th century, they decided to revive it and do the transatlantic slave trade. It wasn't a good idea. The Pope outlawed it at the time. That's another topic for another, another discussion uh, for another time. But I, I just want to paint this picture of the view of slavery in the early church really quickly. Uh, John Chrysostom, an early church father, he described slavery as the fruits of covetousness, of degradation, of savagery. He called it the fruit of rebellion against our true father. Augustine, and I love Augustine, he's one of my favorite church fathers, he saw slavery as practicing the Roman Empire a result of sin and contrary to God's will. Now the church was fairly settled on their opinion on slavery and very strong language too. And so how does this passage apply to us then? I mean, modern slavery is real. There are many modern slaves in this world. But how does it apply to us? What is Paul saying here? If he's addressing slaves, then isn't this about someone else? Isn't he referring to something else? Now, many use this passage to describe it as your work, your workplace. In fact, I kind of set the whole sermon up for that right at the start, didn't I? And the reason they do it is because there's a pretty clear principle that Paul lays out here that does apply to the way that we work. 
Now, the key difference is you're not a slave of your workplace, although you may feel like one. You get paid, you get to go home at the end, and if you want to, you can quit. Those are three key, key different things that you have over and against a Roman slave. But you did, you do offer your labor, you do offer your service, you do have a master, you do have a boss. So there's some clear parallels. And so we're going to get some helpful principles that show us how we can apply these to our workplaces and how the gospel, which transformed slavery to the extent that slavery was abolished, how the gospel can transform your workplace and transform your experience of work. Because sometimes work sucks and work's not great. But we're going to get into it. So verse 1. Bond servants are to obey their masters, first and foremost, with fear and trembling. And that speaks to a sort of respect and reverence towards the power the master possesses. Now, it's not this sense of cowering fear, of terror towards your boss, because at any moment something bad may happen to you, but rather it's a healthy respect and reverence for the fact that God has ordained their authority and that you are underneath their authority. And then Paul says, with a sincere heart, as you would to Christ. Now, first a little bit there, sincere heart. You could, another word to describe it is integrity. Having a sense of integrity, the person that you portray yourself is the person you are behind closed doors. And we're going to see what, exactly what kind of integrity we're talking about. Verse 6, uh, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. We all know what Paul is uh, talking about here, aren't we, Chloe? You know when uh, your boss shows up and you work just that little bit harder because you know the boss is watching? You know, he comes into the room and you, you know, all of a sudden you're in, you've got an extra gear that you can put yourself in and you're just working that little extra harder. We don't want to get in trouble. I remember working at this noodle bar and I used to make this barbecue pork. It's like beautiful Chinese barbecue pork, chuck it in the oven, big long strips of it, glaze it with honey. Oh, it's the best thing ever. And I remember I'd sit out the back and I'd just cut little chunks off it and just eat it. And uh, oh man, even right now, it just makes my mouth water. But uh, I would not have done that had the boss been out there with me, right? <laughs> it changes the way you work when your boss is there. And so Paul, he wants integrity. He doesn't want you to be sneaking the barbecue pork out the back. Um, and then when the boss comes in, you're a completely different person. He doesn't want eye service. He doesn't want people pleasers. He wants consistency. Not looking over your shoulder every 20 minutes, like, who's watching me? Oh, no one's watching me. Let's watch another video on YouTube, or let's scroll through our social media feed one more time. Oh, no, the door's opening. You know, you quickly flick that tab back, and you're straight to back where you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to be doing, where you're supposed to be working. Like sometimes we just wait till the job promotion's on the table, right? Or that new job opens up at work and you're like, oh, I'm going to go for that one. And the way you work in that circumstance or the job, you know, your salary's being negotiated and all of a sudden you've got this extra gear you can put yourself into and you can keep it sustained and you can work hard. That's eye service. That's people pleasing. You're doing it for your own gain. The person we present to the world needs to be the person you really are. That's what Paul's saying here. And we have to understand that it's God's will. That's what God wants from us. Now, you might say to me, you know, you don't know who my boss is. They're cruel. They don't care what you do. Whether you're a good worker or you're a bad worker, you've got to, you know, you've got to kiss their butt if you want to get ahead. 
There's no point working hard for them. Are you, Paul, are you expecting me to obey that guy? Are you expecting me to obey her? Well, yeah. And I'm going to make it even harder for us. 1 Peter 2.18, I'll do it up on the slide. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Be subject to your masters, even the unjust ones, even the bad ones. You're like, oh, this is tough. I don't know if I can do this one. Now, Peter, in 1 Peter here, his point is this. It doesn't matter whether you have a good boss, an evil boss, a wicked boss, or you work for a Christian, and he's the best boss in the world. The principle is still the same. You obey your earthly masters. You do a day's work for a day's wage. You earn your keep. The worker is worth their wage. We're lucky in Australia because you, in a way, not really, but kind of get to choose your masters. Because if your boss is the worst, you can leave. You can quit and you can find another job. And there's nothing wrong with that. But while you are there, you work and you work hard. That's the point. You can choose your master. These slaves didn't get a chance to choose their masters, but you do. And so we work hard, and why do we do this? Because it affects our witness. That's the key thing. And it displays our true relationship with God. And what do I mean by that? Paul says something very similar, Titus 2, 9 to 10. And I'm just going to like underline these a little bit. Our bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Next one, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Notice how it says, not argumentative. We all work with that person that complains all the time. And are they fun to work with? Always complaining about their work. But don't complain, don't argue back with your boss. When they say, can you please do this? You say, yes sir, yes boss, sure thing boss. It's the one most draining thing is working with complaining people. I complain all day about the work and it affects the mood of the entire place and then it just degradates and then it just goes down. It's not fun to work there. But also, we shouldn't pilfer. Stay out of the petty cash. If your work loans you a car, use the car for the intended purpose that the work loans you the car for. Don't sneak out the back to eat the barbecue pork like I do. Don't pilfer from your work. Don't steal from your work. Don't pretend you worked an extra 30 minutes on your timesheet than you did. See, that kind of behavior is what you see out in the world. That's what everyone does out in the world. Is that the behavior for Christians? Well, Paul is saying, no, that is not the behavior. It's ill-fitting of a son or daughter of the living God. So Paul's directed to the workforce in the Ephesian church is simple, transform your workplace with gospel obedience. Transform your workplace with gospel obedience. Paul says in Titus, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's what the workers are to do. The gospel has to seep into every area of your life. It affects your witness. Now, if you had if, if you were in a workplace, let's say you're non-Christian, you don't believe in Jesus, you don't know much about Jesus, but you work with a Christian. They're argumentative. You've caught them stealing from the petty cash. Are you going to want to listen to the gospel? Are you going to think they have any integrity, any value? It affects your witness. He says, 
in everything that you adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. So the teaching that you are saying that you believe is clearly evident in front of you. You're working hard. You're doing everything that you can because it affects your witness to people. If they can see that you're just a liar, that the things you say aren't real, how are they going to believe you? Why would they believe you? Do you want to listen to the lazy, argumentative Christian in your workplace? Or the gracious, hard-working one who doesn't radiate hatred towards your boss? One that shows love even to the unjust. Even to that unjust boss shows love. That's different. That's gospel transformation in a workplace. So let's look at this text again. There's one key reason for why they should mark our behavior. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. God is our ultimate master and everything we do in our life is service to him. We offer our lives as living sacrifices. Uh, Romans 12, 1. Our whole lives are given over to service of God. Now, for some of us, that's a terrifying thought. That we have to do everything to God? Does God just want us to be worn out, busy, tired, every second of every day? If so, I'm out. I can't do that. I can't do it. What does it mean to render service to God? Well, you need to know who God is. Because if you don't know the character and the nature of God, working for Him may be the worst thing in the world. Or if your view of God is that God is super lenient, lets you get away with anything, working for Him is the best thing in the world. But who you think God is will affect the way that you work. There's no better master than God. He is forgiving and gracious, yet He won't let you slack off. He doesn't want you to turn into lazy people, but He also doesn't want to burn you out. Most of us want to be better, we want to improve our lives, succeed at our goals, achieve our aspirations. However, with God, things are different. He wants you to grow and be productive, to be a blessing to those around you, to be an ambassador for Him. Wherever you are, there's no such thing as secular and sacred. People talk about secular and sacred. You're out to your secular workplace, you do your secular thing, and then you come into your sacred place here at church. There's no such thing. Everything is sacred to the Christian. The most mundane task you can think of is sacred to the Christian. God gives rest to his people. God loves his people. And everything we do, everything is done to his glory. If we belong to God, working for him will not result in burnout. It's not going to load you up in anxiety. It's not going to load you up in fear, or good fear, fearing the Lord, of course. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now stick with me through this, because I know some of you may, be think, may have your own theology of work, but stick with me through this. Unless God is in our work, we toil and labor in vain, and trust me, that's a comforting thought. It's a comforting thought to know this. Why? Because God rewards his beloved with what? Sleep is your reward. Rest. God is not a harsh taskmaster. He recognizes our labor, and whether it is seen or unseen, recognized or unrecognized, he sees it, he recognizes it, and guess what? In this passage, he will reward it. He rewards it. 
And God will reward you, and he will reward you according to his will, and his reward is far better than all the silly things we like to pray for. Uh, Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Jesus also says in Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Do not lay out for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay out for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Our treasure lies in the kingdom of God. It lies in heaven, not in this world. God has laid up so many treasures for us, those who work diligently, those who work hard for the kingdom. God has laid up treasures for us when we work those good deeds, those good, the good works that God has prepared beforehand. We from Ephesians, the end of Ephesians 2. God is not impressed with our status or our wealth. He rewards us equally. He doesn't care whether you're a man or a woman, slave or free, Jew or Greek. You're equal in God's eyes and he shows no partiality. So the question is, how is your relationship with God? Do you have the kind of relationship with God where your love for him motivates you to do things? To work hard? Or is your relationship with God so negligible that the thought of working hard seems like a massive task? The thought that God's saying to you, work hard, seems like he's loading up on you another burden, another thing to get you through this harsh, depressing, sorrowful life. Or are you like, let's get it, let's do it. Yes, God, if you want that from me, I'm going to get onto that. I'm going to do it because I trust God has what's best for you. Our relationship with God affects the way we respond to this passage. Brothers and sisters, this is a great indicator of where we are spiritually. Many people will work hard for their own gain, for their own little kingdom that they've set up. They're happy to work hard so that they can pay off their mortgage, they can make sure that there are food on the table for their kids, and those are good and holy things, and I'm glad that we all do those things, but do we work for the glory of God or for our own glory? Why is it when we work for ourselves, we're happy working hard. But when God wants us to work hard, we feel really bummed out. And we're like, oh, I don't know about that. That's tough. I don't know if I want to do it. It reflects your relationship with God. The remedy to this is not busy laboring. It's not picking yourself up by your bootstraps. Okay, God, you say work hard. I don't really want to do it, but you say I have to do it, so I better go out and do it. We need more Jesus. We're going to do it. We need to make sure our relationship with God is right. We need to be praying and reading as you grow closer to God. Why? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Dad sings this song all the time. It was alone the Savior prayed in the dark Gethsemane. Alone he drank the bitter cup and suffered there for me. He knew what he was about to endure for our sake. When we say the work Jesus did on the cross, we use the word work specifically because it was a work that Jesus did on our behalf. He knew what kind of work needed to be done and he knew what he had to suffer. Let's read what it says. Matthew 26, 38 to 39. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, 
may this cup be taken from you, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, when he, when he stared down the cross and he faced down the most impossible, well, not impossible, but the hardest job imaginable, bearing the sin of every person who would ever live, that would ever believe in him, what did he do? He said, not as I will, but as you will. What got him through the cross? His father. His love for his father. His relationship with his father. Any task set before you, if it is God's will, is easy when you're in God's will. Because of what Jesus has done. Jesus' relationship with the Father was central to why he bore our sins. Because it was God's will is why he went to the cross. That is what God wanted, and he obeyed. And it was not simply just to save us, but because it was the Father's will to save us. It was the Father's will. And so when Paul says that we obey our masters with a sincere heart as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, he is expecting that this is God's will and that you have a relationship with God and God's will matters to you. What God wants in your life matters to you. If you don't have a relationship with God, what God wants for your life doesn't really matter. But if he does want you to work, he wants you to work hard, you'll be like, let's get it, let's do it. Because you know God is good, you know his will is good. Paul is presupposing we have a dynamic, a real and authentic relationship with God. If it's fake, if it's tokenistic, if it's forced, of course we're not going to obey our masters. Of course it's going to be a burden. Of course we're not going to want to do it. You're going to be slack, you're going to be rude, you're going to be lazy, you're going to be opportunistic, you're going to steal. And they're all indications of someone that doesn't really know God at all. They're all indications of someone who has no real relationship with God, no real understanding of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel transforms us. If we don't read this passage in light of all the rest of Ephesians and how the gospel has transformed us, this is just going to be busy work. This is going to be hard, this is going to be tough, and we're not going to want to do it. But if you read Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and you get to 6, you're eager to get out there and do what God has called us to do, to transform our workplace with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what God wants from us here is not difficult. It is not difficult. It may sound difficult, but trust me, it is not. Jesus says, Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor, catch that word, labor, and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is speaking truth to you right now. Following Jesus is easy. He gives you rest. He gives you peace. But without Jesus, our burdens are still heavy. We still labor, we're still heavy laden, but in Jesus, we have rest. Now, I'm speaking kind of ambiguously and a bit vague because it doesn't mean that Jesus shows up in your life all of a sudden, your workload cuts in half and now it's all easy. The workload stays the same, doesn't it? But it changes your experience of work. When you understand that Jesus has saved you, if you put your faith in him, when you understand that his burden is light and that he gives rest to his people, it enables you to work hard. Enables you to bust your gut, to sweat, to sleep worn out at night, and yet you've got rest. 
and not as eye service or as people pleasers, but sincerely from the heart done to Christ. When you understand that God loves you, He's adopted you, that He, you know, you have this treasure that cannot fade, spoil, or perish. When your treasures are there in heaven and they can't be lost, the praise of human beings is going to lose its appeal to you. You don't care what your boss thinks of you. Because you love Jesus and you're working for him, not for your boss. You're working for him. You will learn that even the most mundane and repetitive work is sacred service offered up in worship to our great God and King Jesus. It doesn't change what you do, but it changes your experience. Say, let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine for me for a second, you're two men and they've got the most mundane, lame job that you can imagine. They just have to dig holes with a spade. And it's sweaty work. They've got to do it rain, hail, or shine. And it doesn't pay very well either. But one of the men gets pulled to the side and they say, we're on a tight schedule. We need you here every day. If you promise never to take a sick day, guess what? You get a $1,000 bonus at the end of the year. Well, $1,000, that's okay. But the other guy, there's another guy that's there, they take him to the side and they say, we're on a tight schedule, but we need you to never take a sick day. And if you do that for us, you get a million dollars bonus at the end of the year. When you're getting paid like $40,000 a year, that's a big difference. Now, the two men come in, they start digging a hole. They go off to their lunch break, and the first guy who's getting the $1,000 bonus says, man, this is hard yakka, this is tough stuff. Why do we do this to ourselves? The other guy has got a big grin on his face. And he's pouring himself a coffee, and he's loving life, and he's like, isn't this the best job in the world? They're both doing the same thing. But their experience of the labor is so different because one person has riches awaiting them and the other person has not really anything, do they? Your experience of work changes with Jesus. In Jesus, he is our riches. In Jesus, we have treasure in heaven that will not spoil our fate. We have a inheritance. No longer is work a drag, it transforms our experience of work. It is a privilege and an honor to be counted as one of his children. And you will believe that if you have a real relationship with God. If you don't, it will not happen. Last verse. I'm going to finish very quickly with verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Everything we've just read. Masters, do that to your slaves, to your workers. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Did you catch the way that Paul transforms the slave trade? Masters, serve your slaves. Crazy. Groundbreaking, revolutionary. Christian bosses and managers, if you are a boss, if you have people underneath you, do not use threats to motivate your workers. You must do the same thing to your workers. Everything we have learned today applies. Because there's really no such thing as the master, because we all have one master. Our God in heaven. God shows no partiality. Doesn't matter what your wealth, status, reputation, God judges everyone equally. Doesn't matter whether you're the master or the worker. Doesn't matter whether you're the boss or the employee. God judges you equally. He shows no partiality. If you're going to work hard towards your workers, if you're a boss, recognize that you have a father in heaven, a master in heaven. 
Whether you're a slave, free, employees, employees, stay-at-home mom, self-employed, doesn't matter what you are, we all serve one gracious, loving God, our true master, who has rescued us all from judgment, adopted us into his household. If that message doesn't transform the way you work, then you need to go back and understand it again. When you understand the gospel, you can never look at life the same way. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this afternoon who may be struggling with their work, struggling in their families, struggling with their sense of purpose, and Lord, struggling with their relationship with you. Lord, in a congregation this size, there are some of us here who have gone many days without praying, without communing with you. We're not sure where we're at with our relationship with you, Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be hard upon them now, that your gospel would transform every aspect of their life, that they would not hold back their work from your message and from the gospel, but Lord, give it over in willing and glad service to you. Father, I pray that your spirit would revive us if we are far from you, your gospel would become real to us again, that the grace that you've shown to us would just be so precious to our hearts. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done. Please transform our church as you transform the world and bring us into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.